As we're going through the book of Acts, um, you may remember that chapter 8 of Acts, which is where we're at, is a very interesting chapter because it moves us to the next phase of missions, of the mission of God. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the theme verse or a key verse of the book of Acts. And it's that when the Holy Spirit comes upon Christians or the disciples in Acts chapter 1, that they would have power to go and to be witnesses of Jesus. And then Jesus gives like some geographical locations that it would, first of all, they would be witnesses in the city that they were in, which was Jerusalem. And so chapters 1 through 7 There's a lot of witnessing happening in Jerusalem, and then uh, there's persecution against the Christians because of that witness, and they end up being cast out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, and that moves them to the next, kind of like a target or, you know, waves in a ripple, um, that then they went out regionally to Judea and Samaria, and that's where we find ourselves here in chapter 8, is now they're regionally in the region of Samaria or out in a desert in Gaza, as we're going to read today. And then it's like chapter 13, I think that, uh, then the next ripple of to the outermost parts of the world, um, are reached, uh, throughout the latter part of the book of Acts. And then, um, and then it's been said that we live in the 29th chapter of Acts today, you know, because we are still carrying the gospel to those utter outermost parts of the earth. So, um, and so with that, we see Philip, who was a deacon, an evangelist, going out of Jerusalem and going into that region of Samaria and preaching the gospel, uh, and then uh, leading a revival in that area in Samaria. And we had an interesting account of what happened in that revival-filled um, area with the Simon the Sorcerer and Peter and James. Great, interesting drama that happened there in Samaria. But I want to hop to verse 26 uh, and get to the text that we have for us today, where after the drama with the sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer, then verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Uh, You might just emphasize or note that now we have an angel of the Lord speaking to Philip. So this is interesting. This is New Testament. Um, In the Old Testament, when you read of the angel of the Lord, uh, many times that's what's called a Christophany, which is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus is not an angel. He's not a created being. Uh, We know that from theology doctrine from Hebrews uh, chapter one. He's not an angel. He's better than an angel. He created the angels. Angels worship him. Um, But angel can also mean messenger. And so he, in the Old Testament, you see oftentimes he will be the one speaking on behalf of the Lord to people. And whoever listens to him, that angel of the Lord, they will say, they will realize they've talked to the Lord. And so many people would call that a Christophany, but here we don't see it, the angel of the Lord. And like all of a sudden Jesus is appearing again and he's now he's the angel of the Lord again. Um, but rather it's an angel of the Lord. So literally like an angel speaking to Philip, giving him some direction. And, um, it's 
uh, encouraging to hear of stories where even today, when people hear the still small voice of the Lord, uh, even in the littlest things, they will then, um, the Lord like entrusts them with bigger and bigger things. When they're obedient in the little things, they're entrusted with more and more. And uh, I think of Jack, you know, who started um, Mountain Child, where we go in Nepal to uh, share the gospel. And he's a friend of mine. He's been to Prineville a few times. We go to Nepal and visit him. And he has a testimony of just, he was uh, insurance, or uh, what was it? He was an engineer in Phoenix. He's from Oklahoma. His dad actually was uh, worked on the King Ranch, like his whole life in like Oklahoma and Texas. And, uh, but his testimony is that he began listening to like the still small voice of the Lord. And whenever he sensed the Lord saying, just go across the street and talk to that person or just, you know, just do this little thing that no one will know about. And he would be obedient in those little things. Then the Lord would impress on him bigger things and more just crazy, crazy things. And he has a story of, uh, he was riding a train through India and, um, it was nighttime and, just the Lord all of a sudden impressed on his heart, jump off the train right now. You know, so this is kind of crazy stuff. This is after listening to the little voice, you know, for a long time. Uh, and so he's like, so he just takes his bag and he tosses it into the dark and he jumps off the train and the train goes by and it's just, he's out in the middle of nowhere in India and the Lord's like, start walking. And so he just starts walking and pretty soon he sees a little light over on a hill and the Lord just speaks to him, go to that light. And so he'd walk towards that light and just, you know, it's kind of one of those perpetually never ending walks where the light seems to just continually never get closer. When he finally reached the light, he was in this village that had never heard about Jesus before. And a man is waiting there at the outside of the village. And he says, I've been waiting for you to come. An angel appeared to me and told me that you'd be coming to tell me how me and my village, or my village and I, you know, can uh, be forgiven of our sins and know our creator. And so he ends up getting to share the gospel with these people in this village comes to know Jesus in an area that's unreached, unengaged. And, um, and there's multiple times that that's happened to Jack, uh, including hiking in Nepal, hiking in, um, to Burma and coming up to the border. And the Lord says, walk through the border at the crossing. And to go into Burma, there were machine guns and, and, uh, guys that had their machine guns trained on him and he just started walking across the border and they were yelling, stop, stop. And he's like, the Lord has just told me to keep walking. And he began to walk and nobody shot him and nobody ran out to stop him. And he just kept walking and he came to one of the first villages and a man's waiting outside and multiple times. Um, and, and I've actually met someone that had seen a, a man in white tell him to get ready. Cause here comes this gringo, you know, to tell him about how to know Jesus and how to be forgiven of his sins and know his creator. And it's just, a, and his story to us is so often like, it just starts when you just sense the Lord saying, turn off that show. And when you hear the Lord saying, you know, okay, go read your Bible or go talk to your friend or be kind or give some money or, you know, just all these little things or things that no one would know about, or, you know, you're here at the church, you know, and you do see the mud. And so you begin to vacuum it up and you do it for the Lord. You're not doing it for any, you know, just you're faithful in the little things. And he begins to impress on you those big things. Now that's not the message that we're hearing right here. I didn't mean to like necessarily get off on a major rabbit trail, except that Philip is just a guy that like, he hears the Lord tell him to do something that seems odd, jump off the train. 
you know, or walk through the Burmese military, um, you know, crossing. And here it's just as odd because it says the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord says, um, okay, so leave Samaria where there's revival happening. Everyone wants to be where the revival is like the Billy Graham crusades leave where people are getting saved. Everyone's believing the gospel. And I want you to go down to De- uh, Gaza, which is desert. I don't know if you're picking up on what I'm laying down, but that's not the better place, <laughs> you know, uh, when it comes to like your flesh. It's like, can't you ask uh, Simon the sorcerer to go down to Gaza, which is desert, you know? Um, but the Lord does ask him. And I want to point this out again. This is the third time I've pointed it out as we're in chapter seven and chapter eight. And, and it's that Philip, I always like the name Philip. One of my really good friends in uh, elementary school, his name was Philip. And he was just a nut. Like he was a Philip. I don't know. You know, he was just a very kind, not a believer, still not a believer, but just a very kind guy, really good at basketball, really good at running. Even to this day, we're friends on Facebook. He's just a nice guy. He needs the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But I just, I love a Philip, you know, it's just something about him. I'm sure there's bad Philips. I don't think there's a singer Philip in prison anywhere, but, um, but Philip was a deacon. Okay. In Acts chapter six, he's one of the first deacons, uh, that we see that goes to wait on tables, but by chapter eight, he's a revivalist. Okay. And it's just like Stephen, who was a deacon in Acts chapter seven. And by the end of Acts chapter seven, he was such a powerful revivalist for Jesus that they end up killing him for the testimony of Jesus. And now we have Philip who's a deacon. Then he's a revivalist. And later in Acts chapter 21, we're going to see that he's an evangelist who has seven daughters who prophesy. So he's in, he'll, he'll end up being even more of an evangelist, but I keep referencing this verse and I wanted to read it with you guys today. First Timothy three thirteen. Willem, will you read that verse? For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So a deacon is someone that's a servant in the church. Um, in this case, it's the office of deacon. It's a leadership position. But, you know, anyone that serves well in that position, they're the Lord just entrusts them with more and more and gives them good standing in the faith and great boldness to preach the gospel. And so, um, so we see that that's the case with Stephen and it's the case with Philip and, uh, the Lord appears to him or or rather an angel of the Lord says, uh, you're going to go on this road South at the end of verse 26 where it's desert. And so what does it say Philip did do? Did he argue or did he say, uh, yeah, 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 send Simon the sorcerer. That guy could use some time in the desert. You know, we don't even know. That guy seems like, no, verse 27, the first part is beautiful. So he arose and went just again, you hear the voice of the Lord. Boom. You're going for it. And behold, a man of Ethiopia. Uh, I, I don't want to move on too far yet. So uh, so he arose and he went. Um, why would God send Philip somewhere dry and desert when a revival is happening in Samaria? The movement in Samaria 
it didn't depend on Philip. It wasn't centered on him or a one man. That revival was about Jesus. And so it was okay that Philip would, would leave. A personality can be removed from a picture um, if the movement isn't human. If it's of the Lord, then you can take the guy away and the movement will keep happening. And so here it's okay. You can take Philip out because it was all the Holy Spirit. It was all the Lord and it didn't center around one personality. Um, I like what Oswald Chambers says. Faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. It is the life of faith, not of intellect and reason, but a life of knowing who makes us go. So in his obedience here, Philip demonstrated his confidence in the Lord and in his ways. He followed in the footsteps of believing Abraham that Abraham uh, says in Hebrews eleven eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed. I was going to have you guys read more verses. So uh, let's see, Russell, why don't you read that one? By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So he just, the Lord was like, hey, leave Ur of the Chaldeans and get going. And it's like, okay. Like he obeyed. And we read today in John chapter eight in town about how Abraham was marked by obedience. That's something that marked his life. Um, and so we know that one of the reasons why God would have him leave a revival to go to the desert, and I started reading it and then I stopped, was verse 27, halfway through, a eunuch of great authority was there. Behold, a man of Ethiopia. That's why. Like the Lord loves one man so much and wants him to be saved that it is worth Philip picking up from where all the revival's happening and cruising out to the deserted place so that that one man could know Jesus. Who is this guy? He's a, an Ethiopian, which is on the horn of Africa. Um, it's interesting, Roman writing back in the day called Ethiopia like the end of the earth. It was kind of like one of the far reaches of like the Roman Empire uh, towards that direction, towards the south. And I got on a map yesterday and I was looking at the Horn of Africa. We have friends who were Ethiopian missionaries. And uh, so I was looking at where Israel is and then where Ethiopia. And it's it's way farther than you'd think. Like you kind of would think, oh, it's just North Africa, you know, kind of by where Egypt was. And, you know, but Ethiopia I don't know if you get a chance to look at it later, that horn of Africa, it's a distance away that if you were to take like a, a compass and spin a circle, it's probably about where like the edge of Europe is before it hits the Pacific ocean. Like it, if you were to take that compass, you go up to the edges of France, you know, and, and Spain. And that's, so you're reaching kind of, it's far out there. It's almost like the ends of the earth of then the then known earth, you know? And, uh, so he's an Ethiopian. He's far from home. Something we know about him is that he's a eunuch. Uh, he was made a eunuch. Uh, typically servants of the queen or royalty would be made eunuchs so that there never would be any scandals uh, with the queen. He was uh, a lead treasurer here, uh, an important guy who's in charge of the money, uh, close to being like a second in command. All right. Um, and it was for Candace. 
Not only have I always loved the name Philip, I've always loved the name Candace, you know. And it's interesting, Candace here uh, was the queen of Ethiopia, but actually Candace means queen. So uh, it's not necessarily that her name was Candace, but that she was Candace. Um, she, it was a dyna- dynastic title for the queen mother who performed certain functions on behalf of the king. And this eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. This is an interesting thing. Uh, so now this may mean that he was actually a Jewish Ethiopian eunuch, either by birth or by conversion, um, because the the Jewish faith had reached at least to Ethiopia by that time. Um, or, you know, but probably not a Christian yet. Luke in the book of Acts doesn't show him to be um, the first Gentile believer. Um, that, um, so what I'm getting at is in Acts chapter 10, we see that Cornelius is the first Gentile believer. So when this man, the eunuch, ends up believing, he's, he's probably, you know, he's more on the Jewish, either by uh, blood or by adoption. So, and that's actually something that fulfills Isaiah 56, 3 through 6 that the Lord has a heart for the eunuchs. Um, We're going to move on just for the sake of time. I was going to read Isaiah there, but uh, we got a lot to cover here. Verse 28, we see that uh, he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So we know he's a eunuch. We know he's a worshiper. We know he's reading In fact, he's reading, we're going to see in just a little bit, that he's reading out loud. Um, Great encouragement to us uh, in the church to be reading out loud. There's something different that happens as you read out loud. You begin to process it different. Um, And the language back then, these ancient languages, they were easier understood, more easily understood uh, by by reading out loud. In fact, some of the phrases and words couldn't be like you had to really work at it and almost everyone just had to read them out loud. So it was really more of the custom. It was really more necessary back in the day to read out loud. And I find when I'm actually reading out loud, I'm able to, like, I just process it. I'm sure everyone's a little bit different. Um, but like when we're fasting, we read through the minor prophets uh, this year during the fast. And it's like, man, I'm picking things up that I never comprehended just because when you're reading it out loud, it just paints the whole picture. You know, your mind's not wandering quite as much. So something else about this guy is he has a Bible, right? Or he has a scroll. Only the wealthy people could afford these scrolls with the scripture. They weren't easily produced. You know, it took someone writing them by hand. And he, as as the treasurer, was able to have a Bible. Moving right along. And the spirit said to Philip. And so earlier we see an angel of the Lord speaking to him. Here in verse 29, the spirit is speaking to him. And what does the spirit say to Philip? Uh, Go near and overtake the chariot. Uh, So he's sensitive to the spirit again. It's one thing to go to the location and you're there and you're like, okay, Lord, here I am. Desert. It's Gaza. I was obedient. And then you see a chariot and it's like, now go chase that thing down and hop on it, you know? And I don't know if you're getting the picture here, but for you to run after a chariot of, a, of an official of a nation who happens to be the treasurer of a nation, like you got to be ready to be like jumping 
you know, away from some spears and arrows probably and some security guards. Uh, but again, he hears the Lord. Um, in a little while, I'm going to show you some pictures of this area. But when you go to Israel, um, you can, when we've gone, we've asked the bus to stop a little ways off from the cistern where this took place. And uh, the bus will stop and he'll drop us off. And then we will run to the cistern and pretend like we're chasing down the chariot in the same place that this happened. So it's kind of just a fun little thing that we do in Israel. And um, of course, I'm in really good shape and I don't get winded at all and get all sweaty for the next Bible study time at the cistern. But um, but he says, go and overtake this treasure's chariot. Um, you know, if this was a movie, you might have a chase scene and some tire screecher, screeching, maybe some gun noises or what. No, I'm just kidding. You know, but he, you know, he runs up and hops on the running boards or something like that. And notice again, man, these are good things to notice. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him. Don't you like that? Go back up to verse 27. So he arose and went. Those are things that marked Philip's life. Like I hear the word of the Lord. Telling me to go do something. Crazy stuff. Go to desert. Uh, no, go do it. Go chase after that car. Chase after that chariot. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'll do whatever you tell me. Um, I might share a special teaching to our Paulina page. Um, there's a guy named Jamie Winship. And um, he has a ministry to Muslims. But when he was growing up, he always wanted to be a Washington, D.C. police officer. And he told the Lord, he said, Lord... If you get me in to be a Washington, D.C. police officer, I'll do whatever you say whenever you want me to do it. And so he gets into the police academy. He gets into the Washington, D.C. police department. And his first day on the job, he's partnered with a guy named Pat. And he tells Pat, Pat, uh, you know, I just want you to know that I made a deal with God that if he made me a police officer, I'd do whatever he said anytime he said it the first thing I hear. And Pat goes, well, okay, then um, you're probably going to lose your job. And, and he's like, well, then I'll lose my job. God gave it to me anyways. And so like long story short, like I'll give you an example. The governor of the area uh, had their child kidnapped and Jamie and his partner, Pat, were brought onto the scene to take information down about the child and where they might be. And Jamie said, uh, we'll find your son. And Pat's like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to tell. You can't say that you'll find their son. We don't know if we'll find the son. And he's like, God told me we're going to find his son. Oh my gosh, you're going to get us in so much trouble, you know? And so, uh, so they go out, uh, and they're sitting in the car and they're kind of making a game plan of like, well, where could we go? And you know, we got to go find, and, and a car drives by and the Lord impresses on Jamie's heart, pull that car over right there, right now. And so Jamie just screeches out and just goes around and cuts off this car. Doesn't even like pull him over. He just stops the car, gets in front of him, gets out and says, open your trunk right now. And the guy opens his trunk and the kid's in the trunk. And so he ends up getting to take this guy to the, um, takes the guy to jail. And he tells the guy like, okay, we've had a string of, um, kidnappings. I sense that you're the guy that's done all of them. Where are the body? Where are the bodies or where are the kids? And, uh, the guy's like, I'm not telling you nothing. You leave me alone, blah, blah, blah. And Jamie just goes, you know what? I'm just going to pray for you right now. I can tell you just, you've had a hard life and whatever. So he just prays for the guy and he's just praying the mercy of Jesus over him and just the love of Jesus over him. The guy starts bawling and he takes a paper, starts writing down all of the places where these bodies are and the kidnappings and everything. And, uh, and the guy became a Christian that day. And now every year on the anniversary of his arrest, he writes Jamie and thanks him 
that that day that God let him get arrested was the day he found forgiveness in Jesus and wholeness. So it's super long story. There's amazing stuff. But basically that's been his entire career and the FBI heard about him and the CIA heard about him solving, solving cases just by hearing the voice of the Lord. And so they hire him to go to Iraq and to interview terrorists and the terrorists, he'll pray for the terrorists and they'll, they'll open up like, here's where these terror cells are. Here's where they're building bombs. And it all started with, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, no matter what, I'm going to do it. And so it's just, again, be a Philip. It's like, the Lord told me to go to the desert, so I went to the desert. The Lord told me to go chase down that chariot and hop on the running boards and talk to that. So I chased down the chariot and I hop, you know, and, uh, and it's just a great example for us. And, uh, and so behold, uh, where are we? Okay, go near. Okay, so Philip ran, verse 30, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? So we see here, Philip ran to him. He heard him reading. He was reading the scripture out loud. Such a helpful practice. Uh, verse 30 and 31. Uh, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. And so this is just such incredible humility on behalf of this eunuch. So many people, you know, they don't want anyone to tell them anything. And especially when it comes to the scripture. And so there's such in tremendous humility in this eunuch to let a stranger hop up. He probably was the Lord, you know, speaking to him, like, let this guy in your chariot, let him talk to you. And, uh, and so he let him talk. And it's also a good lesson to us that there are rules for literature and interpretation for the scripture. First Peter chapter one tells us that there is no scripture that is a private interpretation where we can be like, oh, this means this to me. And oh, this means that to you. And it's cool that it means that to you. It means that to me. Like there are rules, deep rules for how to interpret the scripture. And, and they all speak to the truth of who God is and what his mission is. Okay. Um, now that doesn't mean that there aren't some recognizable like gray areas that we can hold loosely that kind of the understanding has been a little bit hazy on some things, but overall, like the main things are the main things in the Bible. And it's not just like, Oh, whatever whim that we have on any given day. No, there's rules on how to read this and understand it and rightly divide the word of truth. And this eunuch is willing to let this um, evangelist hop on his chariot and walk him through the interpreting of Isaiah chapter 53 verses 7 through 8 is what that was. So, um, so he asked, and so I love this, uh, you know, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And so he asked Philip to come in and guide him. When you read Nehemiah chapter eight, verses seven and eight, it talks about how um, at the water gate, Nehemiah and the priests, Ezra and the priests would read the word and give the sense. And so, and actually there was like a platform that they would stand on and everyone would read the word and then there would be the sense given. So there was preaching happening and interpreting of the word so that it would be edifying to uh, the hearers. And what did he read? Verse 32 tells us from Isaiah 53, the place in the scripture, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. His justice was taken away and who will declare his generation for his life is taken 
from the earth. And so it's this messianic psalm called uh, the from Isaiah, the suffering servant. And it's just incredible today. There's videos of um, it's been called the forbidden text in Israel that rabbis have forbidden their people to read this text because it speaks so strongly of Jesus. And so there's a Jewish messianic Jew, Christian Jew over in Israel who takes Isaiah 53 and he has, he goes all around the temple Mount and he has Jews read it. And he says, who's that talking about? And they, they all say, Jesus, that's talking about Jesus. And so he's able to preach to them, Jesus from that passage. And uh, I have a friend, Chris Cross, he's come uh, and spoke in Primeville and he is at a gym working out and he gets uh, him and his buddies when they're working out, they always huddle up and pray before they go work out really hard. And this guy who's not a Christian has been watching for a number of days and finally comes over and is like, can I, I just kind of want to pray with you guys. Maybe really get my, get amped up before, you know, so he ends up praying and Chris ends up reading Isaiah 53 to this guy, by the way, he's a Jew, just a ripped Jew, you know, and, uh, and he reads Isaiah 53 to him and the guy gets saved and he, and his mom's so concerned, like, oh no, you need to go talk to the rabbi. And he's like, I don't need to go talk to the rabbi. Um, mom, read Isaiah 53. Who's it talking about? You need to go talk to the rabbi. Mom, read Isaiah 53. Who's it talking about? Please go, just go talk to the rabbi. And he's like, fine, I'll go talk to the rabbi. And she goes and he tells the rabbi, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the suffering servant who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, just this incredible story of this guy getting saved by reading Isaiah chapter 53, prophetic of Jesus, the suffering servant who would be like a lamb taken to the slaughter and to bear our reproach and, and that it would please the Lord to chasten him uh, so that we could be forgiven. It's all part of that rescue plan. Verse 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Um, so I know he's writing about somebody, but who's he writing about? And it says, so Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, Isaiah 53, preached Jesus to him. I don't know about you, but this reminds me of in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus and he began to uh, talk to them about uh, how all the scriptures from Genesis through the prophets speak of Jesus. He says, these are they which speak of me. And, um, and he, and then later on in Luke 24, it says he opened up their eyes that they might comprehend the scriptures. And so I just want to encourage you guys to always be praying, Lord, open up my eyes that I could comprehend the scriptures. They're not just a bunch of random stories that don't make sense. They are all one story that's all pointing to Jesus. The common thread from Genesis through Revelation is that God sent his son uh, to glorify uh, God by dying a death in redemption of sinners and so that he might redeem us back to himself. And so... Um, and so it's just amazing. You can just picture the chariot, the horse clops, clopping, you know, or whatever it is, you know, and the wheels uh, uh, rolling down the road. And Philip just given this Bible study. I was going to show a picture from our Nepal trip in 2019 when Courtney and Michelle and Lindsay and me, uh, part of your Polina church, we all, our bus that we were driving up through the Himalayas had the leaf spring shock package fall off of the bus. I mean, it's that rough of a road. So we had to sit there for like three hours while a guy on a motorcycle on the back of another guy on a motorcycle 
went to buy a get a big leaf spring bundle and bring it back up. And we're sitting there on a rock next to about four Israelis. And I'm talking to them about Jesus. Basically, it was a Philip moment where I'm opening up the scripture and I'm pointing to them how these are they that testify of Jesus. And they were amazed that this Gentile guy from Oregon like knew more about their scriptures than they did. And so I just encourage you, open up your mouth, watch what the Lord will do when uh, you get an opportunity to share about him. And so what did Philip do? Philip preached Jesus Christ. Look at verse 35. Beginning at this scripture, he didn't preach health, wealth, and prosperity. He preached Jesus Christ. It's back in verse five as well. He preached Jesus to the Samaritans, okay? Um, and so as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Russell, do you want to throw up just a couple pictures? Uh, there should be some pictures on there. Uh, this was from Lindsay in my 2012 trip. Uh, but that's in, so this is like one of the only cisterns in the area. So it's believed that this was where Philip baptized. Where's the other picture? Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. So, <laughs> sure. Uh, so this is the outside. It's just kind of like this hole in the ground and, uh, you kind of walk down in and then it's almost like a room down in there. Like you saw, and, uh, it's believed that that's the cistern where, um, Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And there's still that same road. The buses are driving on that road today. You can run down the road and just like we did. So, uh, you can go to the other picture real quick too, just to get another, just a view of the inside of this. So here's an incredible question. Um, so not only is, you know, this eunuch, someone who is willing to, uh, learn, but here he says, he just asks a great question. And it's a question that I always ask people when there's a water trough around and I'm preaching the gospel, you know, and I just ask this, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And it's a question of obedience. He, he asks this question, you know, he's hearing from Philip and somehow Philip brought up baptism. It's just implied there. And he's, you know, he just says like, okay, water, like I want to show that I believe what you're talking about. And, you know, it's, it's a great question. And so many Christians are disobedient in this most simple elementary principle of Christianity. They go their whole lives. I was one of them. Uh, you know, since, since I believed it took me years to get baptized. Even I was a pastor by the time I finally like listened to the Lord and went and got baptized. But so often we wait like, Hey, here's water. What hinders you from being baptized? And you're like, well, grandma and grandpa aren't here today, or I'm in my Sunday Easter clothes. And so, you know, I can't get those wet, you know? And it's like, pretty sure that was nothing. You know, we just come up with all kinds of, I just ate a communion cracker. And, you know, I always heard that you can't go swimming for 30 minutes after eating a communion cracker, you know? And so there's just all kinds of stuff. We always make a bunch of, you know, probably one of them is I'm like scared. I'm scared to be in front of people. I'm scared to get wet in front of people. I don't want people looking at me. And like, none of these are good excuses for not being baptized. And the question is uh, asked, what hinders me from being baptized? Or why shouldn't I be baptized? Um, you know, is, is there anything in my life that would hinder me from this? And to be honest, there are many things in people's lives that would hinder them from being baptized. But it just comes down to this. Okay. And here it is. Verse 37. Philip said, 
If you believe with all your heart, you may. And maybe there's people, they just, they go to church, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe with all their heart. And, and so they shouldn't get baptized. They're not Christians yet. Um, but Philip says here, if you do believe with all your heart, you may. And then he answers and says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And so there's this great statement and declaration of faith. Now, something about it. We got to be real about this. Verse uh, 37 is missing in the original manuscripts. And some scholars believe that it was a scribe that wrote this in here as a, you know, maybe he had heard that this was said somewhere. Uh, Maybe he had heard from someone who heard that this was said. But the problem is, is it's just not in the original manuscript. And the good thing is, is that we know this. And so that helps with scriptural integrity, um, not worrying about the Bible, you know, uh, because we know the original manuscripts don't have that. Later versions do, like, I think it's like second century is when you begin to start seeing that. But that the scribe had written this out of a fear of what had happened with Simon the sorcerer. So Simon the sorcerer had been baptized, but he never really believed in Jesus. He was you know, poisoned by bitterness and deceit we read last week. And so sometimes that can cause us to like, now we're worried about baptizing people because we don't really know if they're really Christians or not, you know? And I just, you know, part of our heritage is just like, you know what, man, we baptize people at the profession of faith. And here the eunuch, it's just like, was clear in the story, maybe even through the scribe later on, like, hey, just so you know, this guy had a profession of faith and that's why Philip baptized him you just because of that not being in the original you just can't hold it like this you know you just have to be like hey this is the reality of where that comes from okay um john stott says these two sentences in verse 37 seem to have belonged to an early baptismal liturgy so maybe while you're baptizing someone you say um, do you believe with all your heart? And then the person getting baptized might say, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the son of God. Kaplunk, you know? Um, and so, uh, and so what happened? So he commanded the chariot to stand still. He probably said something like, whoa, okay. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Okay. Couple things here. I want to ask the question, what is water baptism? Okay. Um, and what are prerequisites for water baptism? And I believe that the prerequisite for water baptism biblically is that you believe with all your heart in Jesus, that he is the son of God and that he came to die on the cross to wash away your sins and you have received that into your life and you are forgiven by Jesus. It's not church membership. It's not sign on the dotted line. It's not you have to go to Calvary Chapel. You know, it's it's. do you believe with all your heart? Are You, li- you want to go live for Jesus. And if you want to go live for Jesus, then you may. I'm going to give you just a few things though that we know of water baptism from the scriptures. Number one, water baptism is a baptism of repentance, okay? Uh, it's the baptism of John the Baptist. And in Mark 1, 4, Mark, uh, John came preaching a baptism of repentance. Someone once said that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. 
Okay, and so what it's a picture of, and you see this in Galatians, you see this in Romans chapter six, verse one, that uh, baptism is a picture of burial. And so you're standing there and you're saying, I am with Jesus. Well, Jesus died and was buried and he rose from the dead. And so then you are likening yourself to Jesus, uniting yourself with Jesus by saying, okay, just like Jesus died and was buried, so does Rory Rogers. The old Rory is dead and buried in the water of baptisms, but he doesn't stay dead. Just like Jesus rose from the dead, I now am being raised to newness of life, to live a new life with Jesus. I think it's Galatians chapter four says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and died for me. And so baptism is a picture of like my old Rory and all of his sin and selfishness and, and lust and covetousness and everything that I used to just be owned by, that's dead. It's been crucified with Jesus at the cross. And now I live a new life. I love that during the Gulf War back in like 1990, chaplains, used, you know, there was no water around to baptize guys. So chaplains would get caskets and they would um, waterproof them. And they'd fill them up with water and soldiers would come and they would get baptized in caskets. And it's just such a perfect picture because it's like, hey, uh, the old Rory is dead, but the new Rory is alive in Jesus Christ. Um, I like what Doug Moo says, just as faith is always assumed to lead to baptism, baptism always assumes faith for its validity. Okay. So baptism is a baptism of repentance. Um, it's our position is that with the early church that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Okay. It's not a work of the flesh that saves you. We believe in Jesus and that's what saves us. Now, if you believe in Jesus, the question should be asked, why wouldn't you be baptized, right? One of the first fruits of believing in Jesus is obedience, and it would be the obedience to go get baptized, all right? And so we see here with the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the question is asked. He has an understanding of Jesus, and he vocalizes, I believe with all my heart in Jesus. Man, the moment he like believed with all his heart in Jesus, he was saved, born again. Okay. But then it was like, well, now that I'm born again, what do you know? Here is water. Why wouldn't I just get baptized right now? And that's a great question uh, for us. The thief on the cross is a great example of someone that doesn't have to be baptized before salvation. Uh, And so Jesus told the thief on the cross, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Mark chapter 16, 16 is also a great verse um, in some question if it was in the original manuscripts, uh, but it's still a great example for us uh, where it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Uh, And so who is saved? Well, first we see he who believes and is baptized is saved. Okay. Um, But really the clincher here is he who does not believe will be condemned. So belief is that key action there that is just a resting and a trusting in God. 
Um, let me read just this little paragraph from this article regarding that Mark 16, 16. Those who try to use Mark 16, 16 to teach that baptism is necessary for salvation commit a common but serious mistake that is sometimes called the negative inference fallacy. This is the rule to follow. Quote, if a statement is true, we cannot assume that all negations or opposite of that statement are also true. For example, the statement, quote, a dog with brown spots is an animal is true. However, the negative, if a dog does not have brown spots, it is not an animal, is false. In the same way, he who believes and is baptized will be saved is true. However, the statement, he who believes but is not baptized will not be saved, is an unwarranted assumption. Yet this is exactly the assumption made by those who support baptismal regeneration. Okay. And so basically we believe that we are saved not by external works of righteousness or external labors, but by the hearing of the word of God and the belief in it, trusting in him, uh, and putting our faith in him as Ephesians two, eight and nine says, for by grace, we've been saved. Uh, it's not of works. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so it's by the, it's purely the grace of God that we're born again, not by any labors of our own. Secondly, a New Testament baptism is not only one of repentance, but it's one of immersion, which means, man, certainly, you know, if you don't have a water source around and all you've got is like, you know, a little dipper full of water, hey, that's great. You know, you use what aqua you can, you know, uh, agua you can, but, you know, a biblical uh, baptism is one not of sprinkling, but of immersion, a complete immersion. And it's that picture of death to sin, buried in the ground, but alive to the Lord. There's an old joke that when you're being baptized, the longer you're being hold under the water, held under the water, the more sin you had to be washed clean of. Um, and so I finally got baptized uh, since I believed in 2012 in this Israel trip. And my pastor baptized me. And there's pictures of it, like snapshots when he's baptizing me in the Jordan River where John baptized Jesus and he baptizes me and I'm under the water and I'm like, thank you, Lord, for helping me to finally obey you and be baptized. And I'm just enjoying it. And then I'm like, boy, I've been under here for a little while, haven't I? <laughs> and the picture, my pastor, Rob, he, we're really good buddies and we just joke around a lot and he's got me under and he's like. <laughs> he's kind of, and then finally I come up and I'm like, you, you know, and it's just, we always joke about like the longer you're held under, uh, boy, you must have had a lot of sin there, but it is a baptism of immersion. What about the age about baptism? We just know that the people who are baptized ought to be old enough to believe the gospel, to know that they are sinners who need to be saved by Jesus and they've put their faith in Jesus. Now there may be some wisdom on waiting till there's some maturity, but really you can't make a biblical case for like, Oh, you've got to be 13, you know, or they've got to be old enough to drive or something like that. Ultimately it's like, man, do you follow Jesus and love Jesus and want to live for Jesus? Do you want to tell the whole world that you've died to sin and that you're alive uh, to Christ? Um, there's a lot to be said about that, uh, but for the sake of time, we won't. Uh, baptism is 
a baptism of obedience and it's obedience and it's two of the sacraments given by Jesus. One is communion, one that we're to do in remembrance of him often. And then there's also the baptism uh, sacrament where we are making this public confession of repentance to the world and a living a life for Jesus. And so verse 39 tells us when they come out of the water, this incredible thing happens. I mean, this is like stuff you watch on TV. They come up out of the water and next thing you know, Philip is carried away by the Lord. And it's the Greek word harpazo, which means rapture. So he's raptured away to another place. It's another, Gaza is Philistine country from back in the days of David. And he's taken to a different town in the Philistine country called Azotus. Just an incredible, um, you know, taken away by force that happened here. Uh, supersonic ride, if you will. And then it's like the Ethiopian eunuch is just like, you know, not a big deal. Like, oh yeah, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And it says he just went his way rejoicing. And uh, just a beautiful story here of um, what the Lord does. Now, check out for the Ethiopians. I believe that this guy went back to Ethiopia and started telling that farthest part of the world that the Romans believe was the farthest part of the world, started telling them about Jesus. And listen to this. It's from 2007, so it's a little dated, but it is from my notes. According to the 2007 national census, Christians make up 62.8% of the Ethiopian's country's population. This is in agreement with the updated CIA World Factbook which states that Christianity is the most widely practiced religion in Ethiopia. According to the latest CIA factbook figure, Muslims constitute 32.8 of the population. Orthodox Christianity has a long history in Ethiopia dating back to the first century and is dominant in northern and central Ethiopia. So I believe that that guy went back and just started sharing Jesus and spreading the gospel. And, uh, And then verse 40, wrapping it up, last verse. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So he's going to end up back in uh, mid-central Israel in the beautiful port town of Caesarea, which means like by the sea, basically. Caesarea Martima is where that is. So uh, we can put our things aside, and um, We're going to be looking at having a baptism once the weather warms up a little bit. So if you or uh, your loved one have never been baptized and you just want to talk to them or come talk to me about being baptized, uh, we're going to do, uh, you know, of course, as a church, we want to regularly practice baptism. And so, you know, throughout the summer, just kind of like as often as we just kind of sense people want to get baptized, need to get baptized, we find water and we go do it, you know. Um, but, uh, as you hear of people maybe in the body that have never been baptized, just encourage them towards this step of obedience and public proclamation of, um, repentance of sin and faith towards the Lord. So.